Good evening, really good to be with you. Um, I think I've only done Preepster once in front of actual real life people in the room. So yeah, great to be able to see your faces as I talk to you. Every day we are bombarded by messages. Some of them are really subtle, like the leaves turning brown on the trees that tell us winter is on its way. Others are a bit more obvious, the driver behind you honking their horn because you're daydreaming at the wheel and the traffic lights turning green. Some messages are, are trivial, like a, a Facebook post about the Bristol's most expensive pizza, 29 pounds, by the way, uh, which you can just scroll past. Others are much more important, like that red traffic light that if you ignore, can have life-changing and disastrous consequences. Our lives are shaped by the messages that we receive, the ones that we pay attention to, and those that we ignore, and how we respond to them. The book of Amos was written more than 2,500 years ago to a people living 3,000 miles away. So why are we studying it this evening? Well, first and foremost, it's because the message that Amos brought was about God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the things that Amos had to say about God are just as relevant to us today as they were to Israel in the 8th century BC but also because the message that Amos brought was to God's people. And we see that at the beginning of chapter three. Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Amos is not speaking to a foreign nation as some other prophets had done, he is speaking to a people chosen by God. Uh, we got this from Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So there's a bit more, Simon. Thank you. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath, he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And if those words sound familiar, it's because they're echoed very closely in the New Testament in the book of 1 Peter. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It's a great privilege to be one of God's people, to be in his family, to be his treasured possession, to be united to Christ, as we've been hearing from Ephesians in the mornings. We've been redeemed, our sins forgiven, God's will has been revealed to us, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit with the promise of a greater knowledge of God in eternity to come. And the people of Israel were privileged to be God's people too. They were chosen out of all the nations of the earth, not because they were the most numerous, but simply because God loved them. And God demonstrated his love to his people in many ways. He had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He led them through the wilderness and driven out fierce nations from the land that he had promised to them. And God had sent prophets to point them back to God when they strayed. And there were two huge privileges that Israel enjoyed that the nations around them didn't. 
God had revealed himself to the people of Israel, and he even dwelt among them first in the tabernacle and then the temple. Israel knew God in a way that the other nations didn't. The second privilege was that God had given them the law. This was the way in which God taught his people how to live, how to worship him, how to show the other nations what a blessing it was to be God's people and to be a blessing to the nations. God called his people out from the peoples of the earth to be a holy nation, set apart to be different from the peoples of the earth. Israel would only fulfill this God-given responsibility by hearing the word, following God's law in relation to how they treated each other, especially the vulnerable children and women, widows, the poor, the disabled and the old, and by fearing God, treating him with due reverence and worship. And this evening in Amos chapter three, we're going to see that judgment comes on those who fail to hear the word and fear the Lord. We'll see how Israel had failed to hear the word and how they failed to hear to fear the Lord to the extent that now God was going to punish them for all their sins. And we'll also think about what it means for us to hear the word and fear the Lord as we live to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. So firstly then, Israel had failed to hear the word. For centuries, God had been sending prophets to his people to point out to them the ways in which they were straying and transgressing God's law and to point them back to true worship of God. The prophets' messages were often combined with times of hardship for God's people as a stark reminder of the promises that God had made to them. We don't have time to go through it in any detail, but we can read in Deuteronomy 28 of all the blessings that God promised to his people. He promised good harvests, triumph over their enemies, prosperity, many children, and to be the rulers over other nations. But the people of Israel had forgotten that this promise was conditional on their obedience to God's law and their worship of him alone, not following other gods. They had forgotten that God also promised to remove the blessings if they didn't obey him. They would face failed harvests, ill health, barren wombs, defeat by their enemies, famine, great suffering, and eventually exile from the land God had given them. And we'll see more next week in chapter four about the escalation of curses that God had brought on Israel to cause them to return to him. But sadly, Israel had failed to respond to this discipline. They'd failed to hear the word God sent through his prophets. In fact, in chapter two, Amos accuses them of actively shutting up the prophets, telling them not to prophesy. And there was no further discipline to come. They'd reached the limit of God's patience. And this is the point at which Amos arrives on the scene. Now, Amos is an intelligent and persuasive speaker. He knows he brings a message that people aren't going to want to hear. And so in verses three to six, he uses everyday well-known images to draw the people into agreement with him before landing the sucker punch of verses six to eight. Now, these are not easy, word, easy verses to understand immediately. It's not obvious what Amos is getting at, so I'm very grateful to him that he gives several examples of the things, um, of the same thing to make his point. Uh, reading from verse three, do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in a thicket when it has no prey? Does it growl in its den when it's caught nothing? Does a bird swoop down to a trap on the ground when, where no bait is there? 
does a trap spring up from the ground if it has not caught anything? When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Amos here is making a logical statement that one thing happens because something else has already happened. Um, it's uh, a cause of a case of cause and effect. I can imagine Amos as the lawyer in a US courtroom pacing in front of Israel as the defendant in the dock. He says, is it not true that two people will only walk together because they first agreed to do so? An easy opening question, thinks the defendant as he agrees with Amos's statement. Isn't it true that a lion will only roar if it has first caught its prey? Again, the defendant agrees. It's only logical. If the lion roared first, its prey would know it was there and escape. Is it not true that a bird will only swoop on a trap if someone has first placed some bait in it? The defendant is warming to the task and answers in the affirmative more quickly this time. Is it not true that a trap will only spring shut if something has first triggered it? Yes. And here's where Amos starts to get a bit more real, a bit more serious, because this is what's coming soon in Israel's future. Amos paints a picture of people in a city going about their normal lives. Is it not true that when the trumpet sounds to warn of an enemy approaching, that the people will tremble with fright? I imagine they would. Is it not true that when disaster comes upon a city, it's because the Lord has caused it? Well, the defendant is perhaps getting a bit nervous at this point, but is in the habit of agreeing. Um, so you see, Amos says, God is sovereign and in complete control, and he tells his prophets when destruction is coming. Is it not true that prophets will only prophesy if the sovereign Lord has first spoken? Perhaps the defendant realizes at this point that his goose is cooked and refuses to testify against himself. Amos's argument reaches its conclusion here. If the people can see that it's only logical for one thing to happen because uh, something has caused it, then surely they can see that Amos is only speaking because the Lord has spoken to him first. Prophets don't prophesy without a reason. If they warn of coming judgment, it's because God has told them to. A lion's roar provokes fear and God's voice inspires prophecy. And prophecy comes for a purpose. The purpose of prophecy is not to predict the future, but to bring God's truth. Prophets denounce sin, encourage repentance, and teach obedience um, to God. Prophets are a blessing to God's people to warn them and bring them back to him when they're wandering away. And the fact that Israel had refused to hear the word of God showed that they were not truly God's people and had no place in his family. And now God's patience has run out. Amos was bringing a message of final destruction for the people of Israel. If we turn to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Just make clear, the son here is, of course, Jesus. And Jesus would bring a similar message of judgment to the Israel of his day for their failure to hear the word, this time coming from the mouth of the word of God, 
the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus told this parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time and the tenants treated them in the same way. Last of all, he sent his own son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Just like the people of Israel in Amos' day, the Pharisees and chief priests in Jesus' day showed that they did not belong to God's family either because of their refusal to hear the word. They rejected the prophets of old, but they had also uh, rejected Jesus, God's own son. Jesus said that their place in God's family would be taken from them and given to others. This is terrible news for them, but it's great news for us. There is a place for us in God's family through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. But what will we do when we hear the word? Jesus gives us two options in this parable. Jesus describes himself as a stone. We can either have Jesus as have Jesus as the cornerstone upon which we build our lives, or he will be the stone that falls on us and crushes us. We will ultimately be judged on how we respond to the, the gospel. But in the explanation of the parable of the sower, Jesus taught that many who hear the word will initially respond with joy. But when trial, persecution or hardship come, or they just find other things that are of more value to them than God, then they will fall away. And the Bible is also very clear to us that those who are saved cannot lose their salvation. Jesus says in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. We love this verse, don't we? It gives us so much comfort and it should do. But do you know the verse that comes before it? Who are them to whom Jesus gives eternal life and whom can never be snatched from his hand? Well, verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Israel were confident in their status as God's people because of a historical connection and past blessing, but their confidence was misplaced. Jesus' sheep are identified not as those who heard the word and responded with joy, but with those who go on listening to the voice of their saviour. And Jesus speaks to us in many ways. 
We are blessed beyond belief to have the Bible in our own language and the freedom to read it and to study it, to be able to come to church and hear his word preached clearly, to be in fellowship with other believers who will lovingly point us back to Jesus through his word when they see us straying. And we're also blessed to have a loving heavenly father who will bring us hardship and suffering to make us wake up and change our course to bring us back onto the narrow path that leads to life. Let me ask you this evening, is there anything in your life that God wants you to relinquish to him? Is there any area in your heart that God is trying to change, but that you are resisting? I've recently been doing some DIY in our garden. We've got a wall that runs the length of the garden that the previous owners had half covered with some plaster in order to um, sort of paint over the top of it. However, they only did half a job and it looks frankly terrible. Uh, my task uh, recently has been to get rid of all the plaster. Claire's task has been to oversee and make sure it was done properly and thoroughly. Now, a professional would have had uh, some proper tools, maybe a, a power drill that would have dealt with the plaster in no time, but I'm not a professional. Don't suppose that's a surprise to you. And so my tools were a lightweight hammer, um, better used for um, knocking a few nails in, um, and a screwdriver. Now, despite my lack of appropriate tools, I was making quite good progress. Um, but again, because I'm not a professional, um, I started to get some blisters where my hands weren't really used to the tools, and that became quite painful. Unfortunately, I hadn't even removed half the plaster from the wall. Claire was impressed with my progress, uh, but wanted to know when the rest would be finished. So uh, I had to go back to it. And before long, the blisters had healed and hardened into calluses. Well, this made the job much easier as I could keep going for longer without feeling any pain until I stopped. And the calluses, which are just dead skin, dropped off in the shower, leaving raw skin beneath. When, sorry, a, 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 a gross image, but you, you'll see why. When we hear the word of God challenging us on areas in our life that don't honor him, it can hurt a little or even a lot. But if we persist in rejecting the authority of his word, if we continue to ignore the pricking of our conscience, then that pricking before too long will create a callous on our hearts that becomes immune to the life-giving word of God. There can be parts of our hearts that are completely dead. Sometimes God will come along and strip that callous away, leaving painful rawness underneath for a while in order that he might then heal us. But sometimes that callous spreads to other parts of our hearts and we're affected less and less by God's word until we're more like the path in the parable of the sower. And the word that we had once received with joy just bounces off to no effect. If this is true of you this evening, then I urge you to examine your heart closely. Is there a desire to walk closely with Jesus, to hear his voice and follow him? If there isn't, can you be sure that you're saved? Turn to him now before it's too late. Come to the foot of the cross. Throw yourself on his mercy and receive life from the one who gave his life for yours. And if you know that you're trusting in Jesus, 
but you've been ignoring his voice for so long that you feel like you just can't find your way back, then know that no matter how far you've wandered from him, he's never been far from you. Call out to him. Ask him to change your heart from one of stone to a heart of flesh and recover the joy and blessing to be found in hearing the word and following Jesus, your shepherd. Well, not only had Israel failed to hear the word, but they'd also failed to fear the Lord. And let's return to Amos in the courtroom. Having called the people to hear what God had to say to them, Amos was almost ready to read the charges and deliver the sentence. It was God's law that said there had to be two witnesses to convict anyone of a crime. God now calls the people of Egypt and Ashdod to bear witness to the lawlessness of Israel. Oops, I've lost Amos. verse 9 says this, proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, see the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who store up their in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. Israel had rejected God's word for so long, they no longer knew how to do right. God's word was so far from their minds, that they'd stopped even asking themselves what was the right thing to do. They just did what pleased them, what satisfied their desires. And the result of all this was twofold, the accumulation of great wealth and the hypocrisy of their religion. Now, we know they were wealthy because, Amos tells us here, they were living in strongholds and fortresses and mansions. They had more than one house. They had houses for winter and houses perhaps up in the mountains to retreat to, when it became too hot in summer. And we read here their houses were decorated with ivory. Although there were people living in the land who didn't have enough food for their families, the rich were hoarding their wealth and even getting richer at the expense of the poor. Amos tells us in chapter two, verse six, and they were selling the poor to get more stuff just for a nicer pair of sandals. That is how little they cared about those they should have been taken care of had they been taking God and his word seriously. And they were storing up their wealth, all the loot they'd plundered against a future day when they might need it, perhaps, for their defense. They built strongholds to protect themselves and their wealth. They presumed that if they were ever attacked, they could take refuge in their fortresses. If the area their winter house was in was raided, they could hide away in their summer house until the danger was past. They put their security and comfort in what they had rather than in their God but God will reveal in the most dreadful way the futility of their supposed security. He's going to pull down their strongholds, plunder their fortresses, tear down their winter houses and their summer houses. Their houses will be destroyed and their mansions will be demolished. God wouldn't stand for anything that took his place as Israel's refuge. Israel feared the nations around them and the loss of their belongings more than they feared the Lord. Israel also put their security in religion, but not the kind of religion that came from their hearts. The kind of religion that Israel were keen on was merely a performance. Their security lay in the altar and the temple, but not in the God of that altar and temple. They had the misconception that the altar itself would keep them safe. 
Now, God had put a provision in his law to allow anyone who accidentally killed someone to escape immediate retribution from the family of the person they'd killed. And if they were innocent, they could run and take hold of the horns on the altar to take refuge and receive a fair trial. But if they were found guilty of the crime, they would be taken from the altar and put to death. But Israel were far from innocent, and the altar would be no protection for them. And the horns of the altar were also the place where the blood of sacrifices would be sprinkled to make atonement for sin. God was going to cut off the horns from the altar. There would be no refuge for the innocent because there were no innocent. They were all guilty. And there'd be no atonement anymore for the guilty. Their worship was hollow. They did not fear the Lord and honor him as they should have. In verse 14, we read, On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. God will completely destroy or would completely destroy the two spheres of security that Israel had comforted themselves with, their temples and their property. Now, the Hebrew for verse 12 is uh, tricky to understand. Well, if I'm honest, the Hebrew for all of Amos is tricky to understand. But even the experts aren't exactly sure what this verse is about. But there's a word there that pricks our New Testament ears. Rescue. And if you pay closely, pay, pay close attention to sermons here at HPC, you'll know that we like to finish our sermons on a note of grace. Well, hold on, because we're not quite there yet, because this rescue is not the kind of rescue that you want. In fact, it's not really a rescue at all. That word rescue could also be translated as recovery or recover. If you were a shepherd in 8th century BC Israel, looking after someone else's sheep on two little wages, you might be tempted just to steal a couple of sheep, just to supplement your income. But how would you account for the missing sheep at the end of the day when the master counts the sheep back into the sheepfold? Master, a fierce beast came and carried away those missing sheep. It was so terrifying. You're lucky it only got a couple of them, really. The master would not take you as your word, but would expect you to provide proof that they'd been eaten and not stolen by you. And if you were an honest shepherd, then you would track the beast down, find where it had eaten its meal and rescue um, the, the remains. Whatever remnants of your master's sheep you could find, just a leg bone and a bit of an ear, the uh, undigestible bits. And this is the kind of rescue the Israelites could expect. The most likely meaning for this verse is that there would be some Israelites saved from the enemy, but only as a token reminder of the nation that used to be, with only fragments of furniture to remind themselves of what a great and prosperous nation they had once been. But whatever the correct understanding of this verse, the intention of the metaphor is really clear to us. God is going to completely destroy the nation of Israel. And this is the image of God that many people have, that the God of the Old Testament is angry and judgmental, but Jesus in the New Testament is kind and loving. But let me tell you, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not stand idly by while people refuse to hear his word and fear him as Lord. He doesn't stand idly by while people oppress those who are vulnerable. And the same God who wiped out the nation of Israel will one day bring judgment on all those who do not fear him and who have not responded to his word. 
They will be cast out into darkness where there is much weeping and gnashing of teeth. Fire was the punishment that was prophesied for all the nations of Amos 1 and 2 that Neil spoke to us about last week. And eternal fire is reserved for those who've not put their trust in Jesus. Gentle Jesus is the same as Jesus the judge, described in terrifying terms in Revelation chapter 1, starting from verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, that's the Apostle John, when John saw him, he says, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. If we've put our faith in Jesus, then like John, we have nothing to fear from the final judgment. But there are many who do. It's our responsibility to tell them so that they hear the word, the gospel, and come to Jesus as their saviour rather than as their judge. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God who plundered the fortresses of Israel is the same God who plundered his own son's life on the cross in order that he might not have to plunder your life and my life. But why did he do it? but so that he might be able to draw us near to him. The Bible can be seen as the story of the God who draws near his people. And there is no greater blessing for us than to know the living God, to feel the warmth of his smile and the love of his gaze. But we are rebellious and we push God away again and again. When we refuse to hear his word, we shut our hearts to his attempts to shape us in the likeness of Jesus. When we don't fear God, we don't give him his rightful place on the throne of our hearts, but supplant him with our desire for more stuff, the security of a bigger pension pot. Or we satisfy ourselves with a performance of religion, attending church, serving with our hands, but not our hearts. When we do those things, we distance ourselves from God. We become reliant on ourselves and not him. Brothers and sisters, let's not distance ourselves from God, but enjoy the blessings of a closer walk with him as we hear his word, and as we fear him. For the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your unfailing love for us, that we have not done anything to deserve. We thank you that you have chosen us out of all the people on earth throughout time, that you've put your love on us, for no reason other than that you love us. And Lord God, we confess that though we know your word, we know what you've said to us, the way you want us to live, that we choose our own way so often. We, we turn away from what you've um, commanded us to do in your word. We've turned away from 
the, the peace there is in walking closely with you. And yet, Lord, you continue to bring your word to us that you might draw us back to you. That when we separate ourselves from you, you want nothing more than to bring us back to yourself. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would keep pricking our hearts, pricking our conscience. That We might not ignore that. Don't let us ignore that. Lord, take away the love of sinning. Be the beginning and end of all that we are. We thank you that our, we have been set at liberty already from sin. And we know that our internal destiny is to never sin ever again. But Lord, right now, today, tomorrow, uh, we do go on sinning. And we ask, Lord God, that you would keep um, speaking to us. You wouldn't take your word from us, that our hearts would not become so hard that we cannot respond to your word anymore. Lord, I pray that you give us that urgency as well to know that uh, you don't change, that judgment is coming, and give us love for those who don't yet know you, uh, that we might take your word to them. They might hear the gospel, respond with joy, and produce much fruit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.